Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O C-O. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com try. Go to shopify.com try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com try. Chapter 9 of The Perfect Frame by William Ard this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Chapter 9 I had to get down to that fire. Not out of morbid curiosity, for there's no sight more sickening or sorrowing than the evil red tongues of flame defiling the black night, devouring and destroying with the passion of a maniac. But I had to get close to it, and I began shoving and elbowing my way through the fascinated, saucer-eyed onlookers toward the fire lines erected by the police, if you think it's tough to cross Fifth Avenue on St. Patrick's Day, then try getting through a fire line without credentials. But I was going to get inside, and was just bracing the first of the big-chested cops when I got lucky. Four feet away, directly, a squad of firemen hauling a great round hose already live and humping with the pressure of water was Bill Stevens in the white helmet of a fire department lieutenant. Bill! Bill! His head turned. Timothy! For Christ's sakes, boy, come back tomorrow. Can't you see I'm busy? Get me inside, I shouted in competition with the ominous crackle of the fire. The roar of the water from the hoses and the voices of the men engaged in the battle. Bill motioned me through with a wave of his arm and the cop stood aside. What the hell do you want? My friend yelled at me. When are you going into the building? I trotted along with him until we came to stand at a spot on 3rd Avenue less than 30 feet from the blazing entrance of the Harmony Bar. In there? We'll be on our way out in about two minutes, he shouted. We're going to tear it down from the inside. Can I go with you? Are you drunk? He cried. Or crazy? Keep your distance, Timothy. I've got work to do. He ordered a direction change on the stream of water and waved a chemical spouter shaped like a mortar, brought closer to the blaze. It's business, I yelled, holding him by the arm. i got to get inside, Bill. Then you're in the wrong business, boy. Now beat it. Can't you see I'm busy? He hurried over to his battalion chief where he spoke a few words, listened to a few, and nodded his head. Then he began pulling a white one-piece asbestos suit over his rain jacket and boots and slipped an oxygen mask over his face. A half-dozen firemen, unordered, began climbing into identical rigs, and then all of them picked up wicked-looking hook axes, formed a single file behind their lieutenant, and followed him into the inferno. A powerful concentration of water and chemical poured over their heads into the building, 
Watching them, I was back at Iwo, except that Bill Stevens was where I had been that sunny afternoon. As soon as they had disappeared into the fire, its intensity seemed to increase. With a great roar, a sheet of flame burst through the roof and out the sides of the already buckling warehouse. From somewhere inside came another explosion, and then the night was turned into a flickering, frightening, unreal daylight. Smoke, tremendous, billowing black clouds of smoke, poured out behind the ugly flame, and from somewhere to the west came the hysterical wailing of more sirens as another company sped along treacherous streets to join the fight. Another squad, under another lieutenant, were climbing into those men from Mars as best as suits, and off they trotted to help or to find Bill Stevens' crew. The new trucks roared up, and in the confusion of their unloading, amidst the thousand orders going around, I grabbed an asbestos outfit, an oxygen mask, and an axe. In fifteen seconds, I was racing across the threshold of the Harmony Bar, and though I couldn't see a thing, I knew where I was going and how to get there. It was either the fire or the axes of Stevens' men, but now there was no searching for the door that led into the warehouse. They had simplified it by taking down the entire wall. I stopped beyond where it had been and wiped the glasses of my mask. From inside, I could see the two demolition squads working quickly but efficiently at cutting down every loose beam, every partition, every possible piece of the structure that could be separated from the burning mass. And there, it was as bright and as eerie as though you stood on the sun itself, surrounded by an unbelievable incandescent light. Only the floor, the concrete floor, was not a fire. In every other square inch of the huge barn-like warehouse, there was terrible flame. I moved slowly toward the files and gazed stupidly at the twisted, still-glowing and white-hot mass of now meaningless metal that sagged grotesquely in every direction. I poked at the things with the tip of the axe, not hopefully, and rightfully so, for the parchment policies they had contained were gone. Gone, as far as my reading them again or trying to make sense out of them was concerned. Gone as clues as to why they had been guarded so carefully and perhaps how a man had used them to embezzle and then killed himself less than two hours before they had been destroyed. I poked at another thing that had once been a sturdy metal file, and there was still nothing that looked like an insurance policy. Not even, to my inexperienced eyes, anything that even looked like the ashes of one. But I knew one thing. It had taken a special fire, an especially hot fire, to do what this fire had done to that steel. Something jabbed frantically into my spine, I spun around to face a Martian, signaling to me in high excitement to follow him. I started to shake my head. I wanted to look at those melted files again. I say I started to shake my head. The eyes behind the other pair of goggles suddenly burned as hot as the fire about us with indignant recognition. Bill Stevens had spotted who the extra fireman was. Suddenly he ducked, drove his wide shoulder into my midsection, and as I jackknifed forward he lifted me on the same shoulder. Then he whirled and out I went, my arms flailing but helpless against the famous fireman's carry. But being in that position across his back, I actually saw what he had only sensed a moment before. Slowly, as though my eyes were a marvelous slow-motion camera, but fast, faster than anything has ever happened before, the street-side wall of the warehouse came tumbling in on us. But it wasn't a wall of wood, it was a solid mass of orange and white and blue fire. As it struck, a great ball of it flew away and struck me right against the goggles of my mask. Other chunks, hideous pieces of flames, hurtled all around us, but still I was being carried and moving in some direction away from the terror behind us. The pavement, this time the actual roadway of Third Avenue, rushed up to meet the back of my head. Then the mask was ripped over my head, and the most furious fire lieutenant in New York City was gasping for air and trying to bellow what he thought of me at the same time. You son! You son of a! You! 
You, you crazy degenerate. You miserable. Hey, loot. Chief wants you in a hurry. Some fireman, some nameless, sweating, wonderful Joe saved me from the unholy wrath of my pal Bill Stevens. Still gasping for air and begging heaven to send down some new words to express what he thought of me, Bill turned and hurried to his business. I raised myself to one elbow and watched his retreat with relief. The fireman stood over me. You crazy jerk! What's the matter? You a firebug or something? I smiled up at him from the street. I was chilly, I explained. Then I climbed to my feet, shed the asbestos rig, and walked over to the fire line where I belonged and was happy to remain. After the collapse of the wall, the firefighters went to work in earnest. Backed by powerful streams of water from what seemed to be a hundred hoses, plus the mortar-like chemical guns, they finally snuffed out the flame that had fallen across the floor of the warehouse, and now they swarmed into the open building. In fact, a large hook and ladder was backed up over the sidewalk into the place and began pulling the wall in toward the center of the demolished structure. Then, with a suddenness that left me blinking, the fire was out, and in its place was a hopeless mess of black, water-soaked wood. Even the clouds of smoke were diminishing. It was all over. Powerful motors roared into life all around me, and the equipment that had responded from stations outside this district began rolling back home to await the alarms that would send them out to new disasters. I thought that would be a good idea for Timothy Dane, too, but a little guy in a saggy blue serge suit, a crushed brown hat pushed to the back of his head, had words for me. He was a sharp-eyed individual, and the eyes moved around my face, photographically, before he quickly flashed a buzzer under my nose. The badge said that he was a fire marshal of the city of New York. Well, he said. Nice fire, I said. You liked it? Not especially, but somebody did. I can take my fires or leave them alone. Why didn't you leave this one alone, then? He asked, turning his hawk-like face sideways to spit expertly on the already soaking street. I left something in there. I told him. I looked up to see Bill Stevens coming toward us, holding his white helmet in one hand and wiping perspiration from his matted hair with the other. You left something? The marshal asked. Last night. You sure it wasn't tonight? It wasn't tonight, I said. I think it was, he said. I got here after you did, Marshal. I came by cab from the west side. Hack license 4325. The driver is named Jack Katz. He wears glasses. It was a merciless smile that creased his weathered face. Got it all down pat, haven't you, mister? I looked over his head at Stevens, who stood there saying nothing and being worried. It's a habit, I answered. The point is, I didn't get here till after you did. That's what you say, mister. Now tell me why you stole various pieces of city equipment and entered a fire zone against orders of a city fire official. What else have you got to say before I take you in and book you? Nothing, Marshal except that I might be able to help you get the incendiary who started this thing if I were left outside the tombs. You know who started it, Timothy? Bill Stevens cried. The fire detective held up his hand. I'll handle this, Lieutenant, he said. Then to me. How come you so damn sure it was arson, mister? Aren't you? He shrugged his thin shoulders. I only know what I see, he said. And all I see is you. You look like a firebug if I ever laid eyes on one. Thanks, I said. But I know you're just saying that to be nice. Let's stop horsing around, Marshal. I was in there, you know. I saw those file boxes. Somebody soaked those things with gasoline and torched them. What file boxes? That warehouse stored files in metal boxes, I explained. Steel boxes. Whose files were they? Well, I said, 
You probably know that already, but just to show you how cooperative I am, I'll tell you that they belong to the Oceanic Brokerage Company. You work for Oceanic? I looked at him. Yes, I said. I work for Oceanic. I can check that, you know. I know, I said. I work for Oceanic. I'm a private investigator, and this job was confidential. Yeah, he said. It's always confidential. They catch you stiffs taking a leak in the middle of Park Avenue. You say it's confidential. He spat again. Beat it, he said. Get out of my sight. And if I catch you so much as leaning against a fire hydrant in the next twenty years, I'll run you in. Beat it. He turned on his heel and walked back to the ruins of the warehouse. Bill Stevens put a hand on my arm and started walking me in the opposite direction across Third Avenue. An elevated rumble by overhead. You maniac, Bill said. What's the matter with you, Timothy? You're going out of your head? I had to get inside, Bill. I really am on a job. That warehouse figured in it, but not the way it looks now. I was on my way down here to have a look at it when it was a warehouse, not a pile of junk and ashes. You think you know who did it? I shook my head. No, but I think I have as good a chance as you guys of finding out. You think Oceanic did it? I smiled at him. Why? To collect the insurance? Bill laughed. <laughs> yeah, that would be screwy. Who then? When I find out, if I find out, I'll let you know first. Okay, Timothy, Bill said, patting me on the back. But for Christ's sake, next time you're near the same fire I am, turn around and go home. I got enough on my mind without dragging you amateurs out of collapsing buildings. Yes, I said. And incidentally, thanks, Bill. You're not welcome, he said. Give me a buzz some night next week. I'm working days then. We can go out and hoist a few like old times. Well do, I told him. I owe you a drink. Yeah, he said, turning. And I owe you a kick in the pants. So long. Coincidence. I tell Jocko Robinson, an employee of Oceanic, that there is something peculiar going on at his company's warehouse. I tell him about it to be helpful. It has nothing to do with the job I'm on. My job concerns a girl and a crummy little bar and a man named Walter Huntington. Then lo and behold, who is Walter Huntington but another employee of Oceanic? Not an employee, but an officer. Coincidence. Walter Huntington dives through a window 43 stories above Wall Street. Jocko tells me that winds up my investigation. I am ordered to stay away from the warehouse. While he is talking to me, that very warehouse is beginning to smolder and burn. Coincidence. Here's another one. I hadn't until tonight seen Fire Lieutenant Bill Stevens in over six months. And now that I'd seen him, I was going to talk to someone else I hadn't heard from in six months. Another lieutenant who works for the city. Lieutenant Hal Harper, the professor. The homicide expert who runs the police lab at headquarters on Center Street. Coincidence. Why? asked Hal Harper on the phone. Should I be bothered about a corpse named Huntington? I'm still on homicide, Tim. Did you see Huntington? Never. Not in this life and probably not in the next. Look, you easy-living lug, don't you think the citizens of this hamlet give me enough work? Enough, sure enough, homicides without my poking around suicides for it? Would you take a look at him? I asked. Hell no, why should I? Merry Christmas, Hal. What? I said Merry Christmas. Merry last Christmas. Now, Tim. It was Christmas Eve, I said. Snow was falling. The Christmas tree at City Hall was all lit up, and the mayor sent all the city employees home at three o'clock. All but Hal Harper. Hal Harper had a corpse on his hands. A nice... Fresh corpse. A bullet through his head, not a single identification. Aw, oh, Tim, for God's sake. 
Not a single identification, I went on, except a tattoo on his left arm. The homicide expert looked at the tattoo. Two symbols, it was. The expert said it was a fraternity symbol. The expert said it could have been a fraternity. My fraternity, Sigma Chi, had two letters just like the ones on his arm. And the expert started to figure out how long it was going to take to identify the corpse just from the fact that the corpse went to college and had a fraternity sign on his left arm. It was Christmas Eve and everybody was on his way home. So the homicide man decides to buy himself a quick drink and then go back to work. Look, Tim. So who does he meet in the bar across from headquarters? He meets his old pal Timothy Dane, that's who. And where is Dane going? He's on his way to Larchmont to a great big party loaded with beautiful women and beautiful drinks. So he buys a drink for the homicide slave, the poor bastard, and the homicide slave tells him what he's stuck with. His words, and I can hear them now, were... Tim, you're breaking my heart. His words were, Tim, I'll be trying to identify that corpse next August. Why the hell couldn't he have gotten himself knocked off the day after Christmas instead of the day before? I can hear him now, Hal, and what does Dane do? Does he laugh in the guy's unhappy kisser and head to Larchmont and all those gorgeous dames? Like hell he does. He goes back to the morgue with his pal, and when he sees the symbol, he says, Fraternity hell, that's the guy's initials. This stiff is a Greek. Yeah, yeah, you're a genius, Tim. So they pick up a newspaper, and sure enough, the Greek ship George is in port. Down they go on Christmas Eve and bring back the skipper of the ship. The skipper takes one look and says, Christopher, that is my third mate, Zoladonidas Opilion. He has been murdered, the skipper tells us, and I know the rat who did it to him. And in 30 minutes, a patrol car is rolling into Center Street with the first mate of the George, and drunk as he is, he remembers knocking off poor Zoli. Case is closed. The homicide man goes home to his wife and kids for Christmas Eve, and Dane goes to Larchmont. When do you want me to look at this Huntington? Hal asked warily. Tonight, Hal, please. He's probably being embalmed right now, but if you could just look in on him, just talk to the undertaker for a few minutes, that's all. Well, he said a little uncertainly, I guess somebody in the emergency squad will know who has the body. What am I supposed to ask the undertaker? How the hell do I know? You're the homicide expert. Oh, fine. All I've got to go on is one of your hunches that this Huntington is a homicide. Call him a coincidence for the time being, Hal. All I'm sure of is that the man is dead, and his being dead is quite a coincidence. Good luck. Yeah, Tim, same to you. And Hal, thanks. Sure, Tim. What the hell, huh, boy? End of chapter 9《Chapter Ten of the Perfect Frame by William Ard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Chapter Ten. It was nine o'clock that night when I got home. I had gone home to try and do some thinking of my own, but my home, my room, is not the place for that. At ten o'clock, the cacophony was going full blast on Fifty Second Street, and naturally, the club of the world's loudest five-piece band. The high hat was the place nearest my window. From the den of it, the floor show was on. Bang, bang, bang! Ta-ra, ta-ra, ta-ra! Baroom, baroom! The barooms meant that Tanya, the tassel teaser, was grinding it and bumping it in the center of the tiny blue-lighted floor. But nothing is what it seems in the hi-hat club. Not that little Tanya gave a damn how many square inches of her body were on display, but the police department cared or pretended to. The customers all thought they saw something naughty and would go back home to Zanesville and Litchfield and 
describe it to the unlucky stay-at-homes. But they didn't see anything at all. It was the blue lights and the bad liquor and the furious writhing of Tanya's hips and shoulders that made it look more entertaining than it was. Nothing is what it seems on 52nd Street, Voyager from one phony end of it to the other. So there I sat, worrying about other people's hangovers, smoking half a dozen cigarettes in the dark and in my shorts. I was waiting for some ideas to take form in my mind. There was material for a good idea, God knows. Huntington and Oceanic and Jocko and the fire. Plenty of food for thought, but the only thing my mind kept nibbling on was a character named Rocky Castell, New York's most lovable little bastard. And I thought about Rocky's organization, about Handsome, the slick one, and Wemo, the friendly one, and of course Vito, the crazy one who lived in a land where there was always the foggy, foggy dew. I heard Handsome's smooth voice again. Stay away from the blonde queen. Orders from the boss, Rocky the First, king of the punks. Hands off, Sally. Costello himself had ideas about Sally, the golden girl. Taking pictures of her and selling them to the highest bidder, that was all right. That was business. Anything else was private. That was Rocky's pleasure, if and when, or rather, whether or not Sally had any ideas of her own about being Rocky's girl. It didn't matter. The important thing was that Rocky wanted her, and anybody who thought different got visitors. Sometimes it was the quick workover delivered with the message, as mine had been this afternoon. Sometimes, if the workover wasn't convincing, it was a no-return trip out to Coney Island. That was their favorite place to dump bodies, Coney Island. I don't know why. Maybe when guys like Rocky Costell were kids, Coney Island was the only place to go, and you didn't go more than once a year. My visit from the boys meant that Sally was being carefully watched. Rocky was protecting his prize. Everywhere she went, everything she did, everybody she saw or talked to or even glanced at, Rocky knew about it. He was after Sally. He wanted her. And he didn't want any interference from Timothy Dane. I thought about it. I listened again to Handsome's threat to stay away from her. Then I snubbed out my sixth cigarette, redressed in the dark, and went out to my room and down to 53rd Street. It was a warm, starlit night in Manhattan. A night to be in love, or fall in love. My feet were pointing west, and I started walking. If Castell's greasers were watching Sally's place tonight, I hoped that they didn't miss anything. The cute little redhead, the bombshell type, opened the door to the apartment and beamed up at me. Oh, she said before I said anything. Oh, come in. Wait, I mean, don't come in, she cried, grabbing at the front of a white wraparound that had suddenly fallen away from her body. I was hypnotized. I... You're Timothy. I... She was having a time getting that thing back where it belonged. Timothy Dane, you're a detective. I'm... Timothy. Sally was there in the doorway, smiling at me radiantly over her roommate's auburn head. Of all the nice surprises, she said, come in. Oh, yes, come in, said the redhead. Is it safe now? I smiled, thinking it was nice to be able to speak a whole sentence. That's up to you, the redhead warned me. In that case, I thought, looking at both of them, in you go, Dane. Well, Sally said, standing before me in a blue sweater that brought out new lights in her blue eyes and holding my hands in both of hers, I never expected to see you tonight. Expect the unexpected, I said, trying to connect this marvelous girl with all that had gone on in the last night and today, and now, tonight again. There was no connection, none at all. She made me feel like a bow dropping in for a parlor visit up there in Montpelier. 
She made me feel embarrassed because there wasn't a box of candy under my arm or six red roses. I looked at her, and I guess it was shining out of my eyes like a blinker signal. Somebody coughed politely. Oh, Sally said, laughing at me and herself. I'm sorry, Timothy. This is Jean Barnes. It's always nice to be formal, Jean said. This is the closest I've ever been to a detective. I like it. Yes, I said. Now it was Sally who coughed politely, and the little redhead grinned mischievously at both of us. You did come to see me, didn't you? Sally asked. That was the idea I started over here with, I told her. I came over to talk to you. Her face clouded. Oh, she said. I thought you might have come to see me just to see me. It was certainly a good idea, seeing her. I have something I want to talk to you about, too. You know what I'd like to do, Jean said suddenly. It's such a nice night. I think I'd like to take a walk for myself. Oh, no, Sally said. Timothy and I will go out. Well, what's the matter? Sally asked. I looked at Jean, not knowing how much to say. Does Jean know? I asked Sally. About a guy named Castell? The redhead answered. That horrible man. Yes, I know all about him. She laid a friendly hand on Sally's arm. What is it, Timothy? Sally asked. Nothing to lose sleep about, I said, not too truthfully. But I think Castell, or at least some of his friends, are hanging around your apartment. Oh, no. Around here? Just the thought of it was frightening to her. Why? I don't know, I lied. I guess he's just curious. You've got him guessing, Sally. Does it mean I can't go out? Jean asked me. Probably nothing will happen, Jean, but anything's possible as far as Castell is concerned. My thought is that you should both put off having anything to do with Castell as much as you can. This is terrible, Sally said. It's unbelievable. That's only part of it, Sally. Does Jean also know about a man named Walter Huntington? Sally shook her head. Huntington? Jean asked. I never heard of him. Sally's eyes searched mine. What happened? Maybe, I said not harshly. What Jean doesn't know won't haunt her. It was a suggestion, and Jean was quick to take it. Well, if I can't go outside, she said, at least I can get out of your way. She walked toward the bedroom. It's too bad, she added, that you have so many serious things to talk about. You look like you'd be fun. I am, I said, when I'm not working. When aren't you working? Jean asked. I've been working since I was ten. She pouted at me and closed the bedroom door behind her. It had been small talk between us, light and airy. Now I turned to the blonde. I didn't have any small talk for her, unfortunately. I decided to say it simply. Huntington is dead, Sally. Dead! It was wrenched from her throat. Now she sat down, lifelessly on the chair, and I went over and took a seat on the couch. When, Timothy? What happened? Earlier tonight, I said. He... He what? He died from a fall, apparently. A fall to the street from his office at Oceanic. What do you mean, from a fall? What kind of a fall? I frowned at the girl. You're asking the questions I'd like to be asking somebody. Tomorrow's papers will say that Huntington killed himself, Sally. They'll say he was in bad health. Wealthy broker in bad health. Was he? Well, if he wasn't, he certainly is now. 
The story about him killing himself may be true. If it is, then it simplifies everything for everybody. If Huntington jumped out that window of his own free will, then maybe it eliminates whatever business he had with our friend Castell. That means you can go on back home, Sally. No, it doesn't. Castell won't mail any pictures if there's no business in it. I still can't go back home, Timothy. Why not? She stood up and walked to the couch. What do I have to do? Write you a letter about it? I took her hand and eased her down beside me and then across my knees. If you do, I told her, then deliver it in person. I am. She pulled my head down to hers and we kissed. After a few moments, she said, And stop talking about my going home. All right, I said, but it's still a very good idea. This one's better. Yes, but for heaven's sakes, Timothy, stop talking to me. Do something else with your lips. Yes, ma'am, I said, and I did. It was very quiet in that room, especially in the vicinity of the couch. Then a soft voice spoke. That's nice work since you were twelve, said the voice. It was Jean, and I looked up to see her in the doorway. It got so silent out here I thought something was wrong. Nothing is wrong, Sally said, making no move to sit upright. You're telling me, then Jean said to me. I told you you looked like you were a lot of fun. He is, Sally said. It was their conversation, and I stayed out of it. Well, I guess I'll go back into the bedroom then, Jean said. Sally slid to her feet effortlessly. No, she laughed. Don't be silly. I'm making tracks, I said. You're making something, Jean told me, and I don't think it's tracks. Jean. Oh, he's a detective, Sally. He doesn't shock like normal men. I think I'll be going, I announced, before the conversation gets over my head. You have to go, Jean asked. Say, wait a minute, that's what I'm supposed to ask him, Sally said. Well, ask him then. So long, I said. I really have to leave, no matter who asks. To Sally, I said, and be careful. If anything else happens, get in touch with me quick. I gave her my home address and the number. Goodbye, Timothy, Sally said. Don't be a stranger. No, Jean said. You mind your own business, Sally told her. But as the door closed behind me, they were both smiling. I walked through the lobby of the apartment, and the slender, dainty desk clerk eyed me knowingly. Good night, he said. It could have been. I told him. Then I went out into the beautiful starlit night. End of chapter 10. Chapter 11 of The Perfect Frame by William Ard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Chapter 11. I spotted three different characters loitering too casually in the shadows around Sally's apartment. One of them probably belonged to Castell, and the other two were some other kinds of lice. To make sure that the right one didn't make any mistakes when he turned in the full report to the head louse, I stopped under a light in front of Warner's building and lit a cigarette for a long time. Then I continued on across town, pushing through the crowds just leaving the South Pacific performance and heading for Sardi's. Quickly crossed Broadway, a really heartbreaking sight when the neon is taken over, and on up 44th to 5th. Now there's a street. Summer, winter, night, or day, there's nothing like Fifth Avenue. But it's especially good at 11.15 of a warm, leisurely evening. And that's what I had, leisure, 
as I strolled past the famous bank that's supposed to be unprotected against night thieves and is yet to be robbed, past the travel agencies with their posters of faraway places, past the Alexandra, a restaurant with the world's greatest bartender, Philip Vanderkar, past the gleaming white office building that was a church a few months ago, and then, of course, the promenade at Rockefeller Center. I kept walking, though the soft music of the waterfall around the Prometheus statue, old Safet Second himself, was a powerful lure to turn in there some night soon, when all this Huntington thing was a memory and I was strolling up Fifth with Sally on my arm, and she wore a summer dress, and the worry was gone from her eyes. Any other night I would have kept straight on to the park for a couple of leisurely ones, outdoors on the sidewalk, at Longchamps or the St. Moritz. But tonight I came to 53rd, my block, and turned down toward the familiar and out-of-place modern art building, and if the front is out of place on that block, then the stuff they put on display inside is out of the world. A very strange outfit. But then maybe I don't understand them. All I know when I look at a nude, whether she's in oil, water, or flesh, I expect two breasts and the regular number of everything else. If some of the things they show in there are women, then the desk clerk at Sally's place is right about them, and the rest of us are myopic. That's T. Dane on art. I climb the three flights of stairs to my room, slowly not in time with the barooms that still accompanied Tanya and the hi-hat, put the key in the lock and opened the door. Besides the studio couch where I pretended to sleep, I own a small radio, a rug, a marvelous leather chair, and a lamp. The lamp stands over the leather chair. Next to the door is a wall switch, but that doesn't light the lamp. The lamp has its own switch, and to put it on you have to walk across the rug and lean over the chair. Hell, I've done it in the dark a thousand times and never had any trouble. But tonight... I had trouble. As I leaned across the chair, I tripped on somebody's big feet. The feet, as usual, were attached to a body, and the body apparently was sitting in my marvelous leather chair. From the body came a voice, a sleek voice, nearly familiar in my mind, but indelible. I turned on the light and looked down at Handsome. So you finally got back, lover, Handsome said. He was, as noted, sitting in my chair, and across his pinstriped lap was a shiny new-looking thirty-eight police special. I looked at the beautiful gun first, and then at Handsome. He was beautiful, too. Tanya would have thought so. For him, all the tassels would come off. To me, he was too greasy-looking and unwashed. "'Get out of that chair,' I said. "'What?' "'You heard me. Get up from my chair.' "'Relax, Snooper.' His hand dropped silently to the gun. "'Get out of that chair.' "'There's nothing special about my voice, nothing that I know of, but I guess I sounded serious.' Handsome stood up, the thirty-eight in his fingers, and walked over toward the window. Now, I said, what do you want? You're as crazy as Vito, he said. What do you got in that chair? A million bucks, gumshoe? What do you want? Get it off your chest and get lost. I thought we told you to stay away from the blonde. I laughed at him, and that made his fingers tighten angrily around the gun. What does Rocky give you guys, two-way radio? When you see him, Junior, tell him I had a good time tonight. You tell him, Handsome said. Rocky wants to see you. I'm busy. He'll have to phone for an appointment next year. He wants to see you. It's business, not about the blonde. Tell Rocky to put a finger in his eye. You tell him, Hawkeye. Come on. He waved the gun toward the door. Rocky wants to talk to you. And he sent you to get me? I laughed again. 
Not that Handsome put me in a good mood, but my laughing apparently bothered him. The gun shook in his hand. Yeah, he sent me. What's so funny? You are, you punk. Did you really think you're man enough to take me anywhere? You... I'll kill you. Maybe he meant it. Maybe he didn't. His voice sounded serious. Come on, he snarled. Get going. The gun waved me toward the door again. I moved in that direction, but instead of opening the door, I flicked on the wall switch. What's that? Turn it off. Turn it off yourself, I said, grinning at him. What's that switch for? All the sleekness was completely gone now. Handsome was confused. Things weren't going his way, and he was just another slow-thinking gunman. I've never met a smart one yet. It's a signal to my mob, I told him. You're cooked, Junior. You haven't got a chance of getting out of this joint alive. Turn that damn thing off! He had the gun pointed at my head, and excited as he was, it was fairly steady. There was about ten seconds to go, and I was set for what was going to happen. You turn it off, I told him again. Walk over here and turn it off. I'll kill- Here's the news! The voice came from behind him, loud and sudden, especially sudden. I was watching Handsome, and his face was so funny I almost lost my chance by laughing at it. But he whirled in to face the sound, and I was all over him in that instant. My open hand slammed down on his wrist, and the first thing that happened to him was that he lost his shiny new gun. Then he lost his breath as my left arm went wrist deep into his stomach. The third thing Handsome lost was his balance as I sent him back into the wall and down to the floor with a right. I stepped over his body and turned off the radio that had been put into action by the switch I had flipped. The gunman was at my feet struggling to get up. Then he changed his mind and decided to rest on his hands and knees. Stand up, Junior. I had something to settle with this one from earlier in the day. My neck and shoulder still ached from it. Stand up. No. Okay. I put my foot on his shoulder and shoved hard. It worked fine. He turned completely over, his nose and chin smacking into the wall. Stand up, I told him. Give me a break, buddy. I'll give you a break, all right. Stand up. He turned his face up to me and climbed slowly to his feet. I moved back about twelve inches. There's your gun, I said, pointing to the bright metal at our feet. I'll stand here and give you a chance to pick it up. The one who loses, loses. Like I said, Gunzels are all dumb. This fool bent over in what he thought was a quick move, but when he bent over, he put himself right in range. I had the back of his neck directly below me, and my right hand came down sideways, like a blade on the spot where it is joined to the body. Handsome had hit me there this afternoon with a blackjack, a little to the right of the spot I wanted on him. My spot was much better. That's the advantage of joining the Marine Corps when a war comes and learning such things in practice, instead of dodging the draft, as Handsome probably had, and reading about judo and books. But I wasn't so much interested at waving a flag at the bastard or pointing up a moral as I was in hurting him as I'd been hurt. If I'm a failure from here on in, I'll always remember tonight and be able to say I was a smash hit. Handsome kept going toward the rug, but he wasn't interested in the gun anymore. All he wanted to do was die. Anything but feel the way he did now. I turned him over with my foot and looked into the glazed, moisture-filled eyes which had been so mean and commanding just a few minutes ago. I smiled at him. I don't know, I said, how many guys you rabbit-punched in the last few years, but what just happened to you goes for all of them. Then I sat down in my nice leather chair, poured a straight one from the Seagram's bottle, and waited for my unhappy friend to get over the worst part. When he looked like he was ready, I picked up the gun, stuck it in my back pocket, and told him to get up. I was only kidding before, 
I said. I'd like to talk to your boss, too. On your feet, Junior. It's getting late. He got up and tried to shake the dizziness from his head. I'll kill you, you son of a... Sure you will. You and your little pal Vito. Now let's go see Rocky. Handsome followed me meekly out the door, and we grabbed a cab for the cabin in Greenwich Village. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 of The Perfect Frame by William Ard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Chapter 12 You can say as many nice things about Rocky Castell's Cabin Club as you can say about poison ivy and canker sores. You can say as many unpleasant things as the Vice Squad will let you read from their dossier. An amazing record that takes in all the nine years since Castell opened its foul doors to the public. Three different men on different occasions have been shot to death at its bar, and the men who held the guns are still at large and presumably unknown to the police. The place is a notorious snowdrop, everything from the rather innocent marijuana to the tragic opium and cocaine. It has been fined and shuttered, as its political influence has waned, for indecent performances contributing to delinquency, violating the state's alcoholic laws, and then reopened again as the right boys got back in the public office to continue as the furtive lair where all the scum of the city gather to speak in whispers of past immorality and plan new outrages for the future. It's inevitable that the innocent and the young sometimes stumble into this filthy trap, lured by the bright chrome, the soft leather, the sleek lighting, and, sleekest of all, the thin-waisted, hatchet-faced, evil-eyed characters who appear silently from every dark corner of the single room and seem to infest the place. One of these punks, handsome, guided me now around the outer edge of the room, past the red leather bar, the black bakelite tables, past the tiny bandstand and the microphone where one of the innocents, Sally, had sung her songs and where, at this moment, a statuesque, high-bosomed, black-haired girl was singing to a half-attentive audience. The singer's dark round eyes shifted to us briefly as we glided by, but darted away again as handsome glanced back at her. He slowed for a moment, and I wondered if the look on his face meant that she had already been photographed and if that was what the gunman was remembering. We walked on and seemed to be heading into a leather-covered wall, but it was a door, and he pushed it open easily to let us through. We were now in a sort of foyer, in whose center was a black door lettered discreetly in gold with the word private. Handsome stopped suddenly and wheeled around. "'We're here,' he said. "'Give me back the gun.' I smiled at him and slid the shiny thing from my pocket and handed it to him, barrel forward. "'But how are you going to explain what the side of your face looks like, sweetheart? Your lip is up like a balloon,' he said something obscene. "'The cops are right,' I sighed. "'All you guys will ever understand is a good kick in the teeth. What do you want me to do, take the gun away from you again?' He had started to replace the gun under his armpit, but now he didn't know what to do with it. Finally, he put it out of sight and patted his shoulder reassuringly. I laughed in his face. That's the first smart thing I've seen you do, I told him. Now open the door and let's go see the guy who owns you. His eyes were hot with rage as he rapped on the door and waited. It was opened a trifle and the sharp pointed features of little Vito peered out at us. Then the door swung back for an instant and we slipped inside. The office followed the color scheme of the club. The walls were covered with squares of red leather and the furniture was black and chrome. At the far end of the room was a curved black desk whose bright finish caught the subdued reflection from the indirect lights hidden in a recess that ran around the walls near the ceiling. In front of my side of the desk was a large chair, 
and on the other side, watching me narrowly out of hooded gray eyes, was the one who called himself Rocky Castell. He looked trim and sleek and unsafe. I knew he wasn't a tall man, but sitting there he appeared to be. The deception came from the way he held his head thrown back, and now as he followed my movements the head was still and erect. It wasn't a bad-looking head, well-formed, with olive-complexioned features that were in good proportion. A face that would leave an impression, and the impression was made stronger by the careful trimming steel-gray sideburns that hung below the jet-black wavy hair. Castell was in his middle forties. "'No need to sit down, Seamus,' he said to me abruptly. "'This isn't going to take very long. I'm a busy man, Dane. I sent for you to talk business. I want to buy something. I want to buy it quick.' I, the long string of eyes, stopped abruptly. He was looking beyond me toward Handsome. Mario, he said ominously, what the hell happened to you? Nothing, Mr. Castell, the voice was surly. Nothing, the sharp eyes flicked in my face. What happened? He asked me. I hit him, I explained. The eyes widened for a moment. Just like that, you hit him. You're a pretty fresh boy, aren't you? I shrugged my shoulders and reached for a cigarette. When it was between my lips, I couldn't find any matches. I picked up the lighter on the gangster's desk. It was in the shape of an ebony nude, and the flame appeared from an unexpected place. Typical bric-a-brac. I replaced it on his desk carefully. Castell had watched every move I had made. Now there was a nerve twitching in his cheek. You bother me, he said. I'm not sure it's worth it. It ain't, Mario said flatly. If I need advice from you, Castell told him, I'd be in tough shape. Just shut up. Now you, let's get this over with. Show me what you got to sell. I don't know what you're talking about, Castell, I said. The lids covered his eyes completely and opened again slowly. He turned his sun-browned hands palm upwards and gazed at them as he spoke. You were told to butt out of this thing a couple of days ago. The word was to lay off a man named Walter Huntington. And a girl, right he didn't look up from his hands. That's right. Did you lay off? No. Now his eyes were on me. No. But we won't talk about the girl. Not now. You'll just tell me all about Walter Huntington. Why? I asked. His voice was unemotional. Because, goddammit, I tell you to. You stuck your nose in my business, and you got in my way. I was shaking my head at him. I didn't stick my nose into anything. I was invited in. By the girl. She came up to my office because you told her to. She gave me fifty dollars of your money. And then you were told to get out. But every time I turned around, I started bumping into you. What happened to Walter Huntington tonight? He asked suddenly. He died, I said. Why? The papers will say he was sick. Eat it, he snarled. Sick! All right, Dane. I think you know something. I'll buy what you know. I don't know anything, I told him. Don't stretch your luck. It's so thin now I can see through it. What is that supposed to mean? I asked him. It means that Vito or Mario are itching to work you over. Don't give me any reason to let them. Lousy Seamus, Vito said. He walked, or rather swayed, toward Castell's desk. Let me take him, he said plaintively. For one hour, Mr. Castell. Castell's eyes moved from Vito to me and back again. "'Go on upstairs and lie down for a while,' he told the hophead. "'I'm all right, Mr. Castell. Beat it. Go upstairs.' 
I'm all right. Vito, Castell said, and that was all. The little one turned slowly, looked at me with a sad expression, and sauntered from the room. The door closed softly. You see what I mean now, Castell said. Nobody likes you, Dane. You'd better smarten up. I am, I said. By the minute. Why don't you stop trying to impress me and get to the point? I warned you not to stretch your luck, Dane. Vito's gone, but Mario's right behind you. He'd sooner knock you off than look at you. With what? I laughed. Air? I turned to look at Handsome's raw, swollen face. I held up my hand toward Castell and showed him the six slugs for Mario's empty gun. I dumped them on the desk next to the strange lighter. If you think you have something to talk to me about, I said, let's get to it. Castell dragged his eyes away from the slugs and stared at Mario. Remind me, he told him, that I want to talk to you later. There was a sharp intake of air from Mario, but nothing else. Why did Huntington jump out that window? Castell asked me. I don't know. You're a liar. What happened when you went down to that little joint last night? I had a beer and came home again. Nothing happened. You're twice a liar. Why, I asked him, did you send the girl to see me? What did you think was going to happen down there when I went? I'll do the asking, Dane. Who set fire to the place? If you know about it, I said, then you know as much as I do. He slammed on his desk. Talk, Dane, and stop cracking so goddamn wise. I'm not used to it. It gets on my nerves. Who burned that dump? You did, I said. What? How the hell do I know who set the fire? How the hell do you know there even was a fire? I reached over and jammed my butt into an ashtray and then sat down in the chair facing his desk. I hope I looked sore. You got me into this rat race, I told him. Why? What's it all about, Castell? Why'd you send Sally to my office? I said I'd do the asking. Why did you send her to me? I repeated. Let's get that angle straightened out first. He was watching me quizzically, an odd expression in his eyes. You and I, he said, better not talk about the girl. You know what I mean? If it makes you nervous, I answered, let's put it another way. How did you come to pick my name out of the hat to be your shill? You didn't come out of a hat, Castell said. It was the one before you that I lifted blindfolded. Jameson, I told him. His eyebrows went up. You're quite a snooper, he said. Ever think about leaving that penny-ante racket you're in? And do what? Work for you, Castell? Don't make me laugh. Why are you so tough to get along with? He asked quietly. It wouldn't have helped anything to tell him. You found a name in the Red Book, I said instead. Jameson. You had the girl send him down to the Harmony. Then he ran into trouble and you picked me for the job. Why? The gangster shook his head. I didn't send Jameson to the bar. That came later. I just wanted Jameson to think he had to tail this other guy, this Huntington, around town. Jameson did. Why? That's my business, friend. My personal business. Shakedown? That's a nasty word, Castell said. I don't like the sound of it at all. Since when? Castell sighed loudly. It really beats me, he said. Why aren't you wrapped in a bag somewhere, Dane? I smiled again. And dropped out in Coney Island? Handsome had come to his feet at my words, and now he stood there waiting, watching Castell. Why Coney Island? Castell asked without emotion in his voice. 
Why not? He laughed an unhumorous sound. That's right. Why not? Now, where were we? You were telling me about the shakedown, I said. Bang went the hands on the desk. God damn it, Dane, I... He stopped and closed his eyes with an effort and then reopened them and looked at me. Ah, skip it, boy, he said. I've never laid eyes on anybody like you, and I've seen a lot of different types. That makes us even, I said. Now let's get back to Huntington and Jameson and the job he was on. The job I inherited. Fine, Castell said. Well, the way it turned out, Jameson would pick up Huntington about five o'clock when he left his office. The Oceanic, he nodded. That's something else you weren't supposed to know about. Why not? Jameson knew Huntington worked there. Why not me? Because you and Jameson are two different characters. You both carry licenses to do your snooping, but one of you is... How do you say it? A harmless little guy. Good for shadowing people, see, you're not even very good at that. The other character, he went on, gazing at me steadily. I'd had reports on from a friend of mine uptown. The other snooper wasn't supposed to be told anything that would get him in trouble. Your friend uptown sells pictures, doesn't he? I asked. A fat, oily, ugly bastard who owns a camera and sells pictures. When you say uptown, you mean Harlem, don't you? I wish he were here for that description, Dane. Costell laughed. He'd love that. Yeah, he added. This guy sells an occasional picture. He sold a couple of very good reels to you. At least you were the strong-arm boy that came to pick them up. It was the caper when I'd taken Tex away from that little octoroon. But I didn't know I'd impressed anybody. Okay, I said. Now I know how I came into it, but back to Jameson. Who the hell came to see who? Castell demanded. Try to get it through your head, Seamus, that you're here to give me information. That's the only reason you're still able to talk. Sure, I said. Now, back to Jameson. He picked up Huntington in front of the Oceanic. Then where'd they go? I had to wait until he stopped shaking his head and emoting behind the desk. When he spoke again, his voice was thin and irritated. Some nights they went to Grand Central. Huntington got on a train and went home. Home where? Costell smiled. You don't know? You mean there's something you don't actually know about my business? It'll take five minutes to find out. One phone call. Make it three minutes. He lives in a town called Westport. That's up the line somewhere in Connecticut. Some nights he went to Westport. How about the other nights? Most nights he went to Westport, Costell corrected. Then one night he went to that little dive, the, what's its name, Harmony. Huntington went into the Harmony? What did Jameson do? I asked. Well, Costell said, that part's a little vague. You see, Seamus, I never talked to the guy like I'm talking to you. Every night after he'd tail Huntington, he'd send a report over to the girl, and she'd bring it down here when she came to work. Sally, I interrupted, was working here, singing during that time. Costell scowled. Sure, she was working up here until yesterday when I sent her to see you. You know, he said, it looks like as soon as I made the mistake of getting you, everything went screwy on this job. Next time you'll know better, I advised him. So what happened when Huntington went into the Harmony? Jameson, said Costell, apparently hung around outside for a while. What do you mean, apparently? Relax, boy, you'll see what I mean. He apparently hung around outside, waiting for Huntington to have his couple of drinks and continue on uptown to Grand Central. But Huntington didn't come out of the joint. 
Apparently, Costell said. And so this bright bird dog, a hire, barges right into the place and asks the barkeep where's the guy who came in ten minutes ago. That, and I got all of this second-hand and vague, is one of the last things this Jameson sucker remembers. The next time he opens his eyes, he's in St. Vincent's Hospital in very tough shape. He looks like a truck hit him, right smack in the guts. The hospital report says he was picked up by two cops sprawled in the grass along the East River Drive. In fact, their report even now says it looks like a hit-and-run case. How do you know what the report says? I asked. Well, Castell answered, a day goes by, and there's no word from Jameson. I have the girl call his office, and there's no answer. Then the guy's wife calls the girl, and she sounds all broken up, so I hear, and what I just told you is what the wife told the girl, and the girl told me. So you immediately set me up for another hit-and-run operation, I said. Castell smiled maliciously. Not immediately. First, he said, I send Mario here down to this little dump to, how do you call it, the Harmony. Tell the Seamus what happened, Mario. Handsome's voice was flat and expressionless. I walked into the joint. I bought a drink. What a dump. Nobody's there but me and the bartender. Then I look up and I see an old friend of mine standing down the other end of the bar. Where the hell he comes from beats me. Your friend, I said, is a big guy named Bull. Bull Hinman, yeah. He's a very big guy. I seen him one night in a whorehouse. He took a guy's arm. Tell what happened in the bar, snapped Costell. Leave your love life out of it. Yes, sir, Mario answered quickly. So the bull spots me like I spot him, and we cut up a few touches about the old times. I ask him what's his racket, and he dummies up tight. He tells me he ain't doing a thing, but I know different. He looks too good to be on the bum, so I tell him I'll see him, and I duck out. He thought, I said, that you just happened to drop in for a drink. Is that it? You didn't talk to him about Jameson or Huntington? Costell answered. Mario didn't say anything to him about anything. He told me what had happened, and I knew it wouldn't be smart to have any of my boys try to smell it out. That's when I thought about you, Dane. Sally just told me to go down to the Harmony and look it over. That was the general idea, along with the cock and bull story. What did you figure that would do? Not, said Costell, as much as it did. I was just trying to find out if you'd get worked over if you mentioned Huntington's name in the place and I wanted to get your ideas on why a guy with a job like Huntington's would go into a dump like that. I paid fifty bucks to find out. So far, Dane, I haven't had anything from my fifty bucks but a lot of annoyance. His gray eyes were hooded as he studied me. Yes, I said, not listening too hard as my mind tried to make some sense out of it. From what he'd said, Costell knew nothing about the warehouse behind the Harmony Bar. So now I want my fifty bucks worth, he said. Give. He didn't even know about his fifty bucks. Not yet. I smiled at him. You got what you paid for, I said. I got nothing. And that's what you paid for. I was sent down to look at the Harmony. I looked at it. Do you want me to describe it, Costell? Is that what you want for your fifty dollars? I want information. What's this bull do down there? Why did Huntington go there? Why did he jump out the window? The longer his list got, the wider I smiled. <laughs> that's a lot for fifty bucks. I told him. How much would it cost me? I ignored the question. What was the story between you and Huntington? I asked instead. Who was buying what? What's it to you? He was getting sore again. Not a goddamn thing, I lied, and stood up from the chair. I'll be leaving now, I added, and turned toward the gleaming black door. 
Handsome moved in the same direction, a step ahead of me. That's okay, Junior, I told him pleasantly. I know my way out. Castell's voice cracked like a whip at the back of my head. Sit down, Seamus. Where the hell do you think you're going? I looked over my shoulder at him. He was on his feet and the nerve in his cheek was pumping furiously. I'm going home, I said. Betty, bye. Good night and thanks for nothing. I was at the door, eye to eye with Handsome, whose back was braced against it desperately. Out of my way, Junior, I warned. He crouched, waiting for me to make the next move. Whatever was going to happen, Castell's voice postponed it. Don't do it the hard way, Dane, he said in a different tone. Come on back and sit down. Mario, make us a drink, and I'll tell you a little story about that guy Huntington. That was what I'd come to hear, and the drink sounded like a fine idea. I took the invitation. Can he really make a drink? I asked with a nod toward Handsome. Does he really remember to put in the ice and the water and the whiskey? I sat down again in the chair and stretched my legs. Don't get on his nerves any more than you already have, Castell said. He pressed a button somewhere on the desk, and a part of the red leather wall began to slowly turn in toward the room. When it had made a full pivot, I was looking at a bright chrome bar loaded with all sorts of goodies. What'll it be? Castell asked expansively. I ordered rye and water and watched Handsome fumble a couple of ice cubes onto the rug. But I didn't laugh. After I was gone, he'd still have to explain to his boss why the bullets for his gun were in my pocket, and I guess my heart went out to him. The punk. When the whiskey was cascading silently down my throat, I spoke to Castell. What went on between you and Huntington? Well, Castell began, it's a funny story. I mean, it had a lot of angles and a lot of puzzles. It began about six, seven months back when I got a phone call up in my apartment at three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, right there is a puzzle. Lots of guys put in private phones, but they have so many friends they start giving out the number right and left. First thing you know, it's as private as Gloria Dawn's or Penn Station. But not me. I got a private line that's so private, hell, the telephone company had forgotten the number. Yet the damn thing rings at three o'clock, and when I pick it up, a dame is purring in my ear. Mr. Castell, she says, can you be at the Eastern Hotel, Suite 1341, 830 tonight? What the hell? Sure I can, I said. But it would sure surprise me if I were. What's the matter, sister? You're crazy or something? She told me no, she wasn't crazy. If I went to the Eastern tonight, I'd find a man waiting for me. I can imagine, I told her. I can just see him there waiting for me. Only, I won't see him at all because he'll be sitting there in the dark. All I'll see is the flash from the rod he's pumping. I don't know who dreamed this up, honey, I told her, but you and your friends will have to do better. Imagine a guy like me, Dane, walking up to a flea bag like the Easton Hotel and walking into Suite 1314. I can't imagine it, I said, and held my empty glass toward Handsome. Castell nodded, and the gunzel took it away, refilled it without spilling any ice, and handed it back. Thanks, I said. Handsome's answer was obscene and a physical impossibility anyway. I turned back to Castell. The dame on the phone said I had her all wrong. This man was going to meet me and discuss money. Fine, I said. Whose money? His or mine? His, she said. That's money that will be paid to you. Fine, I said. Why? There's something he wants you to do, she said. I figured there was a catch in it, lady, I told her, and started to hang up. It's a great deal of money, I heard her say, considering what you have to do to earn it. That I've heard before, I said to her. 
but she had me a little curious, especially since she had called on this very private telephone of mine. What, I asked her, does your friend consider a great deal of money? About $60,000, she said, just like that. About $60,000. And what do I have to do? Can't I just send over there to pick it up? That was a joke, see, Costell explained it to me. But she takes it straight. Oh, no, she says, you'll have to come to the hotel in person. It's very confidential. It will all be explained when you get there. Not to me, it won't, sister, I said. You tell your pals they'll have to come up with a better idea than this one. You're talking to Rocky Castell, I told her. I got experts trying to finger me 24 hours a day. I don't fall for any gag as simple as this one. Well, that made her quiet for a few seconds. All right, she said, here's what to do. I'll hang up, and you call the Oceanic Brokerage Company. On the level, that's what she said, Seamus. You call the Oceanic Brokerage Company, she said, and ask for Mr. Walter Huntington. When Mr. Huntington answers, you ask him if he'll be in Suite 1341 of the Eastern Hotel at 8.30 tonight. Naturally, she said, all of this is very confidential. Naturally, I said, and she hung up. In ten minutes, I called the Oceanic and asked for Huntington. A guy comes on sounding all business, and when I ask him the question, he says, yes, he'll be there. Will I? I tell him, maybe. I got to think about it. He says it's a nice piece of money involved and very little to do to earn it. I said I'd think about it and hung up. Castell moistened his throat with a long pull from his glass. So, he continued, I thought about it and even called back at Oceanic. The same guy answered when I asked for Walter Huntington. Then I checked the name a couple of other ways. It seemed to check out. Did you keep the date at the hotel? Costell smiled and nodded. <laughs> what the hell, 60 G's. And the way it was set up, I sure wouldn't be declaring any taxes on it. That thought started him chuckling. And <laughs> that, he said, is how I got to be interested in Walter Huntington. Wait, I said, holding up my hand. Aren't you leaving something out? Like what? Costell said, not smiling any more. Like why you hire private detectives to tail him around six months after you do business with him, I said. And like what you did for him that was worth $60,000. Costello scowled. In the first place, I didn't get 60000 I got 30000 In the second place, pal, I'm through spilling my business to some two-bit snooper. Now you start talking. 30000 I repeated. And just a few minutes ago, you were screaming about $50. Mario. Costell said. Am I going crazy or what? Have you ever seen anybody like this guy? I'll kill him, Mr. Costell. The boss laughed a short, choppy-sounding noise. I looked over at Handsome, and we stared at each other for a long, quiet moment. I told him, Before you figure out how you're going to do it, how about mixing me another drink? Handsome mouthed something foul again. Something about what he would mix for me. If you want a drink, Costell said when he was finished, Maybe you'd better get it yourself. In that case, I don't want it, I said. I'm trying to figure out, I continued, what it was you had to offer Huntington that would cost sixty or even thirty thousand dollars. I've seen the kind of dirty pictures you sell. A million of them aren't worth five dollars. Who's talking about pictures? Who said anything about pictures? I did, I said. Well, forget them, Costell growled. Why? I pursued. Did Huntington meet you in the Easton Hotel and want to buy pictures? What the hell do you keep talking about pictures? Because it makes you jump, I answered. That's why. Every time I say pictures, you'd think I touched you with a live wire. 
Mario, get us a drink, he commanded. So you don't like the pictures I sell, he said to me. I shrugged. Of course, I'm no pimply-faced kid, I admitted. Or like Mario here, or Vito. All I know is I've seen them and they stink. You take some broken-down dame who wouldn't even get a tumble if she walked naked through the courtyard and sing-sing, turn a spotlight on her in front of a black sheet, tell her to stare off into space, drink your drink, and then you call that a picture? You don't know anything about pictures, Costell said defensively. The needle was working. I kept turning it. The trouble with your pictures, I said, is that you let your own taste guide you. Why, you goddamn... And your taste stinks, I told Rocky Costell, and then stared into my drink and tensed myself. But he didn't say anything. I looked up again to find him grinning at me. Besides, I said, it's a cheap nickel-chasing racket anyway. You wouldn't make thirty grand at it in thirty years. I knew better than that, but I said it to get a reaction from this egomaniac. He was still smirking at me. You think so, do you? He asked in an oily voice. I got bad taste, huh? How about that blonde, Dane? Could she walk naked through Sing Sing? Could she? How'd you like to hear about some of my special pictures? Very special ones. I had known when I started that it might come around to Sally. Here it was. I gazed into my ice cubes again and said nothing. What's the matter, Dane? Cat got your tongue, fresh guy. Look at him, Mario. I'm looking, Mario leered. It looks good. He's got a bad for a certain dame, Mario, said Castell. A blonde twist. But Castell saw her first see, and Castell has her all wrapped up ready for delivery. I jiggled the ice in my glass, made it revolve around and around. Okay, Seamus, he said. Since you want to hear so much, keep your ears open. I'll tell you about some pictures worth $30,000. You want to hear it? I looked up at him. If it gets boring, I said, all I have to do is get up and go home. He was still grinning at me maliciously. We'll see what you do, he said, and leaned back comfortably in his chair. I told you this happened six months ago. I went up to that hotel room and met Huntington. He looked just the way he sounded on the phone. The typical well-heeled big businessman. Solid as a rock and loaded with honesty. Costell laughed as he remembered how Walter Huntington had looked to him that night. A real Boy Scout, he went on, and he came right to the point. He said he wanted to buy some pictures from me. Pictures? I asked him for $60,000. Yeah, he said, but not the kind of pictures you sell to everybody else. What I want, he said, are very special pictures. Exclusive, he said, and nobody owns them but me. <laughs> How do you like that, Dane? He was an art collector. Costell laughed again. Yeah, he was an art collector. Very funny art. You hear about perverts, said Costell, and I do a big business selling to guys who just sit around looking at a naked dame and drool. But this Huntington was the world's champion screwball. Wait till you hear about what he wanted. First of all, he said, they had to be nude pictures of girls who wouldn't in a thousand years pose for a nude picture. Costell watched from my face for a reaction. I tried not to give him any. Get the guy's angle, Seamus. He was a goddamn peeping Tom, but he wanted the dame to stand still so he could watch her. Ever hear of a character like that? What did you tell him? I told him it sounded like a tough job. Sure it is, he said. That's why it's worth so much money. Who, I asked him, is supposed to pick out the girls? And when they are picked out, they won't want to pose. I told him it didn't make any sense. He said he'd find somebody else who could do it. 
Relax, I told him. I'll do it. Okay, he said, and here's how we work it. You photograph a girl like I described. She's got to be beautiful, he said, and fresh as a daisy. No dames like I'm taking pictures of now. Dames? I interrupted. Was that your word? My word. Any objections? No, I said. I'm just trying to get a picture in my mind of Huntington. What were his words? His words? His words were beautiful and virginal and unprofessional. Okay, that's all I wanted to know. So, Costell continued, he wants beautiful virgins posing in the nude, just like that. All I gotta do is put an ad in the Times and every gorgeous dame in New York comes running down here and pulls her clothes off. Except that he wants the ones who think a long time about posing like that for their own boyfriends. Anyway, that's what he's willing to pay good dough for. He tells me that I'm to let him see at least one every month, and for every one he likes I get 5000 bucks, and he gets the negative in all the prints. In all, Huntington tells me he'll buy 12 pictures. That comes to 60 G's. Costell stopped and gave me a sour look. What do you use, Seamus? A stomach for that liquor or some bottomless pit? Mario, make this sponge another drink. When I had the fresh glass in my hand, he went on with his story. Well, he said, taking these pictures is a lot of trouble, but not so tough as I thought. I run a hell of a risk, naturally. I'm dealing with a type of dame I never even met before, let alone take pictures of. His lips inched back in a mirthless grin. And it's a lot more pleasure than I ever had. It's getting to be a hobby, he said. How did you take these pictures? I got ways, said Costell. It's involved and it takes time, but I get the pictures all the same. You said you made 30,000. That's six pictures. Now Huntington is dead, I said. What about the other six? There aren't supposed to be another six. That's the whole point, wise guy. Like you say, I delivered six of them. Then I started having trouble with Huntington. What kind of trouble? Well, he doesn't want any more. You see, Dane, the sixth picture just happens to be the blonde queen. How do you like that? I was supposed to be jolted out of my seat by the news. His face was lit up like a Christmas tree with expectant excitement. All I did was gaze back at him and take a swallow from my drink. How do you like it? I said. I like it fine, Seamus, just fine. You haven't got any idea how much I like it. I like it so much I'd kill a guy who got in my way about it. I put the glass down and smiled at him. I'm a popular guy, I said. Little Vito, this greaseball here. I threw a look at Handsome. And now you want to kill me? I'm a popular guy. You'd have a tough time buying life insurance, Costell said. A very tough time. Here we go wasting valuable time, I said. Let's finish your tale so I can go home. I'm starting to get bored, Costell, and very tired. You fresh bum, he said. Okay, like I just told you, I gave Huntington the picture of the blonde, and he gives me 5000 bucks cash. Then the next day I get a call from the dame that had contacted me the first time. Thanks, she says, for all you done, but we don't want you anymore. What do you mean, I asked her. I'm burning. There's still six more to go on the deal. What deal, she says. Do you have some kind of contract? Put Huntington on the goddamn phone, I told her. Quick! Then Huntington tells me that after looking at the last picture, he's decided he doesn't need any more. He says anything else I gave him would be an anticlimax. See what I mean, Dane? It's some picture. You'll never find out, but that kid has a body nobody's ever seen before. How do you like that? He bought her picture and then quit, I said, to keep the story rolling and get away from how I liked it, which I didn't the more I listened. What did you say to Huntington? 
I told him he was doing business with Rocky Castell, that's what. I told him to write out a check for $30,000 and put it in the mail quick. That bastard laughed at me. That's when I decided to look into his life a little. What do you mean, look into his life? Figure it out yourself, said Castell. He is a guy who's got a very big job and a very big company. It's such a big job that he's ready to pay $60,000 and has already shelled out 30 of it for a thing like a nude picture. Any guy who's as screwy as that, Seamus is screwy in a lot of ways. What I want to do was find out about some of the other things and also annoy the hell out of him when I was doing it. Shakedown, I said, just like I told you before. Shakedown hell. The guy agreed to do business for 60 grand. Now he reneges, so I decide to pester the bastard and scare him private cops until he comes across. Meanwhile, I'm finding out what makes him tick. For a shakedown. You're an annoying guy, Dane. Will you, for Christ's sake, stop saying shakedown? He turned his hands around and stared at the palms again. All right, he spoke again. Now you know everything I know. Let's hear your ideas on why he jumped out that window and why that harmony joint burned down. I haven't got any ideas, I said. The hell you haven't. What were you doing up at Oceanic this morning? And my boys spotted you at the fire. What were you doing there? What were your boys doing there? I'm watching everything, he said. I'm watching the Goyle, I'm watching Oceanic, and I'm watching that bar. At least, I was. Hell, I even figured to pull a stick out up in Huntington's place in Westport. Why? I asked. Why all the red-hot interest? Costell turned in his chair and looked at one of the walls. When he spoke, it was slowly. A hunch, he said. Just a feeling. From the first time I ever saw that guy Huntington, something smelled wrong. You mean, don't you, that Huntington didn't look like the type who bought pictures? Something like that. I've sold too many of them to too many people. You get so you can spot the screwballs by just passing them in the street. And he acted like one and talked like one, but didn't look like one. Yeah, he turned to face me again. Now, let's have it, Dane. Spill it. I have nothing to spill. I went down to the Harmony and I came back. I went down to Oceanic and I came back. Now I'm down here in this lousy joint of yours and I'm going home. How much, Dane? See how I treat you? I ask you like a businessman, how much do you want for your goods? I'm a lousy businessman. I have nothing to sell. Who are you working for? You know, I wouldn't tell you, even if I was. You'd be surprised what you'd tell me, Dane. Surprise me, then, I told him. Now you're getting annoying again. I'll give you 5,000 bucks for what I want to know. You're amazing, Castell. First you want a lot of information for 50 bucks. Now you offer 5,000 for the same thing. What kind of businessman do you call yourself? Do you want 5,000? I shook my head. No deal. 10, Dane. 10,000 in cash. More than you figured you'd earn all year. 10,000 if you go to work on this thing. Give me all the answers. More, he said, than I'd figured to earn all year. For one job, this sleek thief was going to hand me $10,000 bills. My impulse was to shake my head again, but I stopped the motion. No deal, I said, but I'll tell you what I will do. You have a print of the picture you took of the girl. Huntington has, or had, the negative. It's hanging around somewhere. You give me your print, and I'll clock this whole caper for you. All the answers, like you said, for the picture. 
The gangster stared at me in amazement. "'You're crazy, Dane,' he said. "'You're the craziest of them all.' "'Is it a deal?' "'My offer was ten thousand dollars,' he said. "'That picture stays with me. "'And pretty soon,' he added, "'I'll have the negative back. "'Nothing doing, Dane.' "'I stood up, my mind crowded with many thoughts. "'All night,' I told him. You've been talking about me getting killed because you don't happen to like me. Well, I'm telling you something, Castell. That picture of the girl is liable to get you killed. By you? By me. I want that picture. I want it bad. You don't get it. And you don't get the girl. This is your last notice, Seamus. Stay away from her. Forget you ever saw her and forget about the picture. And stay out of this Huntington thing from this moment on. Both the girl and the business belong to me. And if you don't want to play it smart, then play it dumb. But don't bump into me along the line. Don't get in my way, Dane. Now get out. That was how it went that night in Rocky Castell's cabin club. Oh, there was something else. Hanson wanted to make a good impression on his boss as I left. He grabbed my arm roughly and began to hustle me out the door, murmuring obscenities along the way. I flattened him with a left hand. It wasn't much of a punch, but then Hanson wasn't much of a man and I don't think he made much of an impression on his boss, what with one thing and another. End of chapter 12 What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.